So many of us over the past few years have experienced extreme rainfall, floods and fires, and the damage to our roads has been devastating. Here's a reminder. We're not talking about just cracks in the road. We're not talking about potholes. We're talking about whole roads have disappeared, you know, fallen off the side of mountains. All of our neighbours have got similar damage, so we're competing for resources, staff, contractors. Picture the Grand Canyon on a slightly smaller scale. Basically, you can't drive your car through it unless you're a mad, keen four-wheel driver. The, the roads have had to be cut off. They now have to go from Perth across to Port Augusta in South Australia and then up the um, Stewart Highway up through, through Cooper Alice Springs up to Darwin that way. It's a hell of a lot longer. You could probably, if you're a solo driver, you probably add on another couple of days. And I'm sure you all have your own version of those experiences. Well, calls for a rethink of how we build a more climate-resilient road network have resulted in a federal inquiry into the implications of severe weather events on national, regional, rural and remote roads. It's attracted a lot of submissions, including from our next two guests. Mark Dimmock is from the construction and infrastructure firm Lang O'Rourke, the company that often partners with the government on huge road, pro- road projects like the recent upgrade of the Pacific Highway. Also joining us is Chris Baker. He's a f- fellow and member of the Engineers Australia Transport Committee. Welcome to you both, gentlemen. Good morning, Geraldine. Good morning, Geraldine. Chris, given we will be unsure facing more frequent extreme weather, how big an issue do you judge this to be for our communities and businesses that rely on roads? Well, it's obviously a significant issue, as we've seen through those recent events that you've just outlined. And I think there's a great deal of interest in working together on how to solve it. And, you know, we have a, a growing population, a growing economy. And so the, the consequences, both at a personal level and at a community level, and are quite significant. And we've seen some of the effects of that in the last couple of years. Yes, I mean, the WA story in particular, the cyclone this year, I think was, uh, I mean, they're all difficult, but that was really just the incredible disruption that it caused. Well, it highlights um, a couple of things. Obviously, the consequences of such an event, uh, but it also shows where there are there are things where we that lack of resilience can come in several ways. It can come in the road not being strong enough to stand up by itself, but it also highlights that there's only one way in and out in some places. Yes, quite. Uh, so. Mark, how would you see the scale of the problem now, just to get a sense of how people like yourself who think these things through, how are you vi- visualising it? Well, I think you just look at the uh, the Northern Rivers and the impact of the storms up there in 2022 and the estimate of the damage to transport infrastructure is $1.7 billion. So uh, just that northwest corner of New South Wales has got a massive rebuild task ahead of it that's um, being led by the Northern Rivers Reconstruction corporation but um but enormous but uh, i certainly agree the impacts on communities and individuals who now have to you know otherwise would travel from point a to point b to get to schools for example and now traveling an hour to school yes so, massive impact and i suppose the question is you know how do we not just reinvent the wheel we go further in the next stage i mean the committee is going to be asked to look at the standards for which roads are built and as we know the idea of a one in a hundred year flood no longer applies so what are some of the ideas being put forward to make our roads more resilient so we're not having this conversation again um chris i think you have a particular interest in what to do about bridges for instance 
Well, I think the um, the idea of, of where does water flow and when does it flow, I think, is is quite important. So there's a lot of work going on uh, already. So people like CSIRO are doing a lot of modelling work around where does the rain fall and where does the water flow and what are the impacts. And so, you know, I call it the engineering Olympics. You either, you need to make things stronger or better or faster um, to have a, a to be more resilient. And so. You know, if you build bridge, if you build more bridges, then potentially the water will flow under them, but that's you know, potentially also an expensive option. Um, or there, are, you know, should we also look at ways of making some of those roads more porous, and so you have the ways where the water can flow through them or around them, into uh, you know, and working out where that water will will go to uh, once it's hit the ground. Oh, just tell us a little bit more about that, please. How people are starting to think about that? Well, you can build more bridges and build the roads higher, you know, above the waterline and set perhaps a new level for, say, the one in a hundred year flood, if that's what's needed. Um, But we need to do all of that modelling and to work out what are the possibilities or what do we think could the worst situation be? Let's just imagine what what alternative scenarios that we haven't already experienced might look like. I and think. I to, think. Can I just interrupt? I think you've got an idea, too, about bridges should be a long single span. This is what struck me when I was reading your material, with no supports or piers in the middle of waterways. Can can I thought that was very interesting. Oh, is that Mark? Is that Mark's idea? Is it? <laughs> Mate, I'll put that one. Forward, okay, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> Right. Yeah, look, I think I think the um, the load on the bridges is exacerbated if you've got debris that um, comes down the waterways and builds up behind the piers that are you know, typically in the middle of waterways. So removing that um, certainly removes that that load point and um, you know often point of failure. The, the other mechanism, of course, is to put uh, debris traps upstream in those waterways, but uh, that in that then incurs a maintenance obligation. So. Uh, you know, it's a trade-off between a more expensive bridge that spans these watercourses versus uh, doing that continual ma- continued maintenance, and they're the sorts of um, sorts of areas where we could get guidance from a you know, national code that uh, looked at how you make those trade-offs. And. Yeah, that maintenance is interesting. Like if you think about what happened often with the droughts and flooding rains of Australia, you can just see how maintenance falls off when there's not a bit of water to be seen in sight and then it suddenly shifts. So, I mean, that's all part of, I I presume you think that sort of better standards would just um, encourage new habits. Is that what you're really getting at? Like an asset management approach more so than a capital Capital Works approach. It's uh, it's a spectrum of yes. asset management and uh, Capital Works that are required. And I think, what? Uh, sorry, go on. I was going to say just back to Chris's point there of uh, single point of failure that he raised. Uh, even planning guidelines to say that we've got to eliminate those single points of failure and have multiple multiple routes for um, op- communities to operate and uh, be effective. And what about materials? Are we using the right materials? for road building. I think most of our roads are gravel and asphalt and I think our highways are concrete. Just correct me at any point if I'm wrong. Is there any new thinking here on how we can improve things relating to the road materials? Because that's what I've certainly noticed. (laughs) It's just not good enough and they they fix it up and then it's washed away with the next uh, bit of water and you hit these terrible potholes. It's it's probably back to that same point about um, managing or maintaining an asset in a you know, in a planned program way rather than 
fixing potholes um, reactively. It's uh, it's a planned approach to managing the asset. Um, I, I think another observation that I make is that um, we forget about the knowledge in some of the regions and the knowledge around you know, quarry products and materials for roads uh, often resides locally and, and in fact, the way that uh, those materials are used in road construction. So specifying something, you know, at a, at a blanket level and expecting that to be applicable locally doesn't uh, often work. So you, you need to involve the local contractors and people who have had experience in in the um, you know, longevity and the serviceability of roads and make sure that they're engaged in the uh, design in terms of what product what products are available, what materials are available, how they're placed and uh, how they're maintained. So I think bringing the you know, local construction workforce into the thinking uh, is also a key, not, right. just, not just a blanket approach. And of, they're not always, is it, they're not always, aren't they? Not always, no, no. There's, um, you know, there's a lack of funding, I think, at, at a local level for, um, you know, maintaining these right. local construction crews. And Chris, another idea that's emerging in the submissions and put forward by the CSIRO is to develop climate resistance corridors. What are we talking about here? Could you give us an example, please? Well, there's a lot of work that CSIRO are doing and with uh, with the industries and communities, and they have a tool called Transit, which has been mapping uh, the corridors and the effectiveness of, and what those corridors do. So I think we're talking then about you know, putting a risk rating on to some roads as to saying, well, let's make some roads and some corridors a priority so that they are they're not just to be, you know, the same quality and standard as everything else, but that they are the priority so that if you are in a place, you can get in and out under more, under much, much more adverse circumstances. And that might not only be in, in the event of floods, but it also might be in the event of fires, because the other thing that we saw a few years ago was in down in Victoria, um, you know, where people were locked in a township because they, the trees had fallen across roadways in the, in the fires. So I think there are things to look at uh, to what are the risks involved so engineers can design to to solve the risk if we all agree on what the risks are so i think that that sort of thing is particularly important so to say um if there's if there's a highly active road um it doesn't just have to be strong enough by itself maybe as we've talked about um you could have. You might need to. You might need to say, well, our design for for urban planning or for um, regional planning says that area with a township of that size connected to a township of another size should have two or three routes to it, not just one mm. road because that's convenient. One of our texters has suggested that the arrival of EV cars will pose a new challenge because they're much heavier um, and will uh, th- than the uh, n- normal cars, um, and that they will put more. Uh, more challenge on the road. Is that? Do you take that in, Mark? Oh look, um, I, I don't know if they're heavy or not, but we do design roads for truck loads, so it's um, you know a standard axle load, and um, you know that is the, the weight factor we're designed for. So um, you know probably probably all of that in combination. I think we did discuss this actually previously. We were talking about EV cars and it was quite an interesting issue actually. Uh, so that that might be something that does emerge. Um, 
Chris, I wonder if it's particularly difficult to model where damage may occur, just building on your previous thoughts. You know, when we have rain in a certain region, but then the floodwaters move hundreds or even thousands of kilometres away, which was the dramatic thing I saw myself over the holidays, you know, moving down from Queensland, this huge amount of water down through the Darling and down through to South Australia. You know, that, you know, that was a bit of a freak event, I suppose, with the three La Ninas, but gee, it was pretty striking to see. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, well, I guess the, the modelling is needs to be extensive, but but it is actually possible. So we do have, um, you know, fantastic. The beauty of the computer age is, I guess, that we can put a lot of numbers through a system and come up with some calculations. Um, and so, I do think the modelling capabilities are there. I think that needs to be funded and enhanced. I think that would be one of the a great thing that we build on the raw science and the raw capabilities of doing some of these calculations and models and build that into a national capability as part of that planning because that would then help mm. um, determine where those roads should be or, or the other or how that planning system should should be developed and what standards might need to be adopted. I mean, Mark, the firm you work for, Langer Rock, is right at the coalface actually building roads. Now, in the world of contracting, um, do you see roads that are not fit for purpose? Are they, are they being rebuilt now? Uh, and in your view, they're not going to last. Oh no, we're we're not. We're certainly not seeing you know uh, intention, intentional designs that are that are not, not intentional. But I mean, can you can you know when you stand back and look, can you think, well, I don't know whether this is going to hold up. Yeah, look, I, I'm at, most of our work is metropolitan work, and it is um, a different standard highway, freeway type standards. It's not uh, the regional road type of network that um, the we're probably talking about here. It's um, yeah. So so I can only comment on the metropolitan stuff that is certainly fit for purpose. Well, look, just look quickly. New ideas, really new ideas. I think one of the submissions recommended a type of bridge that could collapse. Uh, is this is this feasible? Which which of you would like to talk about that? Because we were quite oh, I, I, I could perhaps comment on that because I think that was in ours. So one of the what. Uh, in a similar way to having alternative routes, one of the ideas might be that you actually design some points of failure and have some backup solutions that can be so that they can be fixed when it's possible. So it might just not be possible to design a road that will, or even a bridge in certain areas geographically that will actually stand up, you know, in um, all circumstances. So. You know, we shouldn't rule out the idea because this happens in all sorts of other engineered systems. That you, you, you design for redundancy or design for a point of failure and what you're going to do about it. Uh, so that was the... the well, you know, we shouldn't rule out the thinking that, that you should... If, a, if something was to fail, let's design it so that it can fail in a known way rather than a catastrophic way and then let's have a solution and they're ready so that we can fix it quickly. Right. Okay, very interesting. Thank you. I know engineers think... In very interestingly inventive ways. Look, Mark Dimmock uh, from Lang uh, O'Rourke and Chris Baker from Engineers Australia's Transport Committee, thank you both very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. Thanks, Geraldine. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.